0: This is First Draft, a dialogue on writing. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. First Draft highlights the voices of writers as they discuss their work, their craft, and the literary arts. Coming up, an interview with Jill Cement, author of the novel The Body in Question.
1: You know, honestly, I wasn't a reader, and my mom was really, really nervous about that because my mom was a really big reader. She wasn't educated, but she was a big reader, and she didn't know how to get me to read as a kid. So she gave me pornography when I was 11.
0: We'll be back with Jill Cement in just a bit. First, I want to say to you, thank you for listening. For the last six and a half years, I've been producing at least 40 episodes a year of First Draft. It's a labor of love, but there is also labor involved, time and effort and thought. Whether this is your first listening experience or you are on your 260th episode I am asking you with humbleness and appreciation if you would consider supporting First Draft as a donating member. You can learn more and donate at patreon.com slash firstdraftwriters. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash firstdraftwriters. Your support helps keep conversations like the one you are about to hear going. As our society is changing to independent folks like me producing rich content and meaningful content like that in First Draft. I think we are evolving the model to widely expand the diversity of voices available for the public to tune into, but it takes money, time, equipment, and a lot of heart and sweat to make this content happen. I know there is so much free content out there. In fact, what you are about to listen to is free, but it is not without expense to make as a thank you for joining the first Draft community. I offer my patrons a lot of extras, the best being ad free and pitch free episodes as a thank you for your patronage. I get you to the interview faster because you'll get your own dedicated feed without this ask. Starting at just $6 a month, you will receive extras from the shows, including cuts from the interviews that didn't make it into the final episode, writing tips from featured authors, books, and a monthly newsletter. I'm also so grateful I often send extra goodies to my patrons. Please beat the odds of having to listen to this seven times before you join the First Draft community. Go to patreon.com slash firstdraftwriters. You can donate any amount, and you know it will go to the continuation of these conversations focused on literary craft, content, and practice. I know that right now it's unlikely you are in front of a computer, so I'd like to suggest adding a little reminder for yourself for when you get home to contribute to First Draft. Make a note on your phone, an ink mark on your hand, scribble on a piece of paper, something along the lines of, First Draft, reminder, membership matters. Again, patreon.com slash firstdraftwriters. You can find out more about the show at firstdraftwriters.com, and please stay tuned at the end of this episode. I'll offer recommendations on similar episodes you can dig into. And please rate the show on iTunes and tell your friends to subscribe. Thank you so much. My guest today is Jill Cement, who writes novels, short stories, memoirs, and film scripts. Her memoir is called Half a Life, and some of her novels include Act of God, Heroic Measures, and The Tattoo Artist. She is a professor at University of Florida. Her latest novel is called The Body in Question and centers around a jury who is determining the outcome of a Florida murder where one twin sister is accused of killing her toddler brother. The case is headline news, so the jury is sequestered, and the main character, Hannah, who is married to a man three decades her senior, embarks on an affair with a fellow juror named Graham. As Hannah carries on the affair in sequestered isolation, her husband is at home sick and ultimately dying. We began our discussion with Jill Cement, sharing how the story of a body in question began for her.
1: A number of things came together. You're never inspired by one thing. It's It's almost like a collage in your life, a number of things come together and you can see a story in it. And for me, the body in question, I always knew I wanted to write a story from the juror's point of view, but I never really had anything more than that. And that's, you know, that's procedural, wouldn't be interesting. It didn't have a plot that would arc through that. And then I got the idea for a love affair during that. And I thought, now that's a really interesting idea because then you could... See how much love can blind you to justice, and that would be interesting. But I still didn't have all the elements, and then I'd been living in Florida, and you know, Florida has this crazy trials, and you know, Florida is just a place made for the Zimmerman trial and Casey. What's her name? Casey.
0: Casey Anthony.
1: And, and yeah, the woman who um, murdered her child. So that gave me the other idea. And then probably the largest. So I had all those things stirring in my head. And then I knew my husband was going to die before I finished the novel, even as I was starting it. So I knew I had to put in the death of the husband. I had no idea how he would die. But I knew he would die, and that would be a factor in it. Because I knew I would be going through my own husband's death as I was writing the book. And I would need to put that experience somewhere. So that's how that book came to be born.
0: Because you mentioned that your husband, that you knew that he would die while you were writing this. Did you ever Mm -hmm. question not writing this? Like, oh, this is my time to be with him?
1: No, because, you know, even as he was dying, he was in his studio. He was a painter and he was painting. And it was, you know, that was the life we lived together. So it would have been strange for me not to go and do my work.
0: Were you interested in writing about a jury because you were interested in judgment and what that means, or was there something else there?
1: I sat on about three juries in my life, and each time it was one of the most extraordinary experiences. It was you're suddenly taken out of your life. And in each case, whether it was civil or or criminal, you were going to either destroy somebody's life. It was the first time, you know, in your kind of mortal life that you had the power to judge a complete stranger. And it's a very extraordinary experience. And how people negotiate, people from all classes, people from all walks of life, how they come together on a judgment. I mean, it's just, it, it's a its a moment in a in, in, in human life where, you see the best and worst of people. So that interested me a lot.
0: And your main character, her name is Hannah, but she's referred to mostly as C2 because all the jurors get sort of an identifying number and letter that doesn't identify who they are. And Hannah is, she's a photographer. She married a man much older at the time of the book. She's 52 and her husband is 84. And it's hard for her to leave him and go to the jury, but it also opens up something in her to be there. Can you talk just a little bit about her character?
1: Well, I wanted someone who was accomplished in a, and, and also a professional and a visual, something where I would have um, a character who could see differently than other people. And a trained photographer would be someone like that. So I, I had her do that. And the older husband, my husband was w- much older than me. And again, I, I needed to have an autobiographical element for me to get the emotion into it and i had a dying husband so and and he was dying of old age so i got to I, i wanted to have that experience and you know she goes on jury duty simply to get away from the act of caretaking that was another element you know i was probably in the middle in my own psyche as i was writing it thinking about god i'd really like to get away from caretaking and so part of it was, it's a fantasy too. I mean, the love affair, when you're watching your husband die, if you go in, you know, another room, close the door and write yourself into a love affair, it's, it's, a, it's, it's a way of saving yourself. So she's made up of all these needs that I have. And I think that she is not, it's, it's not autobiographical. We don't share many, many things. Um, You know, commonality. She has a different background. She loves a different husband. But the emotional world that we share was what I was trying to tap into.
0: Did you find some comfort or escape in that? Like, did it serve more than just writing for you? Because it sounds like that was your intention.
1: Writing for me is so cathartic and so much a part of how I feel balanced in the world just by the act of doing it. So I knew I would go to my writing every day. And I I just, what I wasn't aware of is what I would do with all the emotions I had is, you know, once I stopped writing, being in the middle of this, you know, watching somebody I'd lived with for 45 years die. And so it was a place where I could examine those feelings not directly, like in a journal, but through this you know kind of fantasy I was weaving mm. you
0: know Hannah gets there and she has this almost inexplicable love affair with another jury i don't I don't even know if you could say it was love affair, but it was it was for sure it was sex. And one of the things she says that is that she she's at the age where maybe she only has one last dalliance in her while her husband is dying. And she has a very practical side. I mean, when, when she's being questioned to be on the jury, she explains that she got married because even though she loved her husband and they were living together for five years, it made sense for the taxes. So there's part of her that's very black and white, and then part of her that's kind of Reckless, and and she needed something emotionally from from F seventeen. This man named Graham, who is a, a medical professional and and conducts autopsies. So there's something very black and white about him. And I went back and forth in my mind between trying to understand, you know, the emotional side or the black and white side for her, which I think is good in fiction. You don't want to have something clean. But I'm wondering if you can talk about this element of her, like the black and white side and then the other side that didn't make sense.
1: The pragmatic side of her, the side that, you know, is I mean, most people, if you're going to be a successful photographer in that world, you'd have to be somewhat pragmatic. And she, she is a survivalist. She has a, a colder outlook. She's not a very emotional woman. And I thought that would be a more interesting approach because she would be in such heightened emotions, first in the trial where somebody's life is at stake, and then later with her husband. So what I wanted to do was I wanted to take a person who could see clearly, as clearly as a photographer could see when they look into these mysteries, and that was probably what I, how I formed or how I wanted her character to be.
0: And, and and it was interesting too, because she and Graham had a little bit of an age differential, not as much as her and her husband, okay. but she was, I believe, 10 years older than him. So it was kind of like a mirror, like a reverse mirror in certain ways where she maybe had more power in this relationship.
1: I believe, I mean, in my heart, I believe my character falls in love with Graham and doesn't want to, but does in her own way. And, but I also think she entered it. She thought her husband was going to live another five years. Okay. And she's like 52, I think, which would take her almost to like 60. And that would be a moment where maybe this would no longer be possible. So for her, it was a last grasp of youth. And then her husband dies sooner. But, you know, she was counting on those five years, which kind of put her out of the running for, you know, crazy affairs with men. And I think that I made Graham younger than her just to kind of accentuate the the age of something more vital that she was desiring.
0: I want to just read a little part in the beginning that might help also ground the reader in Um, the depth of, of what Hannah is going through. And, you know, this is a sexual book. It's the, the sexual um, affair that she has. She talks a lot also about having sex with her husband. Um, and she said, you know, he's, he's sick and he's old and she's, and you write in the very beginning, they still have sex, but nothing she would have called at 16 all the way. He doesn't so much possess her as haunter at the best of times she can still marvel at how intrepidly he wants sex potency technique performance have been replaced by something more basic the will to live while alive his height and mass may have lessened with age but his life force has only grown denser and more combustible their lovemaking doesn't pivot on potency and technique it does something far more intimate and abiding it slays c2 I loved that line, it's Lazy C too. And I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit more about what it was like writing that and what you were thinking about.
1: Well, I was thinking about making love to an old man, which I have done because I was married to one. And one of the things that's interesting about sex, which I you know, I'm a great believer that sex is vital to marriage. And it's our way of creating a family. When we have a family that shares blood, that's this natural thing. But I think human beings need to share fluids in order to create family. And that's what sex is. And so I, you know, I've always believed that. And, I, and my husband, even as he aged, believed that. And so I wanted to describe what it's like to be at the height of your sexuality and have as a partner someone who is leaving that bodily world. And it was something I thought, you know, is it's both beautiful and it's heartbreaking. And that is kind of what I wanted the whole book to be about.
0: Did the word slay come to you immediately or did you search for that?
1: Slay came to me immediately. It's the only way I can put it, um, that sense of, in the Greek the reason we fall to our knees is the Greeks believed that life existed in the knee. And that's what they called slay. When you fell to your knee, you were slayed to your knees. And so I thought that was the perfect word for it.
0: So speaking of being slayed, I mean, she's basically um, on a trial for uh, a young girl who has killed her infant brother in Florida. And she doesn't believe from basically the very beginning that this girl actually killed him. The girl's name is Anka and she has a twin sister, Stefana and Caleb was the boy that died. So Anka is on trial. She comes from a upper middle-class well-to-do family who are just kind of watching it. And I mean, just what it takes probably to, to love all your children and see that one of them killed the other. And, um, to have that sort of situation, which also sounds very Florida-ish. Um, it It's like a very, you know, it wasn't just a jury trial about a robbery, which maybe she thought she was going into. It was the stakes were super high. And she was kind of out there on her own, believing Anka was innocent. And Anka and Stefano were orphans in Romania that were adopted by this family. So you, you have this background that that you don't really know much about, and we're told that Anca might be on the spectrum of autism and that Stefana, her sister, has a lot of control over her, like maybe a, an almost preternatural control. So how did you... I was just wondering if you can talk about the creation of these characters.
1: Well, I needed a trial that would make the judge sequester the jury. So I needed to be shocking. You know, it, I put it together from a, a, a number of of, of of cases that I was reading about. You know, I had to pick things that I could find the forensics on. So I had to use real trials. And so I used a trial that happened in 1991 in, in Massachusetts, where um, a girl um, was accused of killing. She was a nanny and she was accused of killing a child Um, I don't remember, the methodology, Um, I think there was a fire involved. And then I was thinking about Patricia Highsmith has a a story about a fire. The Romanian part, I I remember that was like the biggest fear. A friend of mine had adopted children from Romania and they came and it was a nightmare. And um, they had been left so deprived of human contact as children that they were... Never able to bond with my friend, and I thought, "Oh, let me get that part in there." And I, I just scoured trials for details. So it, it's such a, a, a mishmash of things. And these characters came alive because I, you know, I, I felt like at first I was fascinated by twins, and I was fascinated by the dominant um, twin that works with the submissive twin, and that is, you know, a whole psychological realm unto itself. And so whatever I found that seemed interesting, I put together as these characters. You
0: you were mentioning that you knew they had to be sequestered. And I was thinking about this idea of sort of claustrophobia, the claustrophobia of their circumstances. And I'm wondering if that I mean, obviously, that's good for fiction. But why was it good for for what you wanted to write? Why? Why were you looking for that?
1: I, mean, I think you, I think people have affairs or feel more able to have affairs when they're out of town, when they're on a vacation, when they are time out of mind. And I, you know, the sequestration is. I mean, again, I I read all these jury books to see what it was like. I mean, they really you know, in the George Zimmerman case, for example, they really did get pedicures. I mean, I, I didn't make up any of the crazy details. I got them all from the cases, but you could see that particularly in the OJ trial. I mean, people went insane. I mean, they're locked up they're They're in prison. And, you know, in that case it lasted months and months and months and people had nervous breakdowns. I mean, and you, you're taken out of your life. You only get to speak to your loved ones, almost with, uh, you know, big brother watching. You have no idea what's going on in the world. Um, They take you for horrifying food, so in case you have any sense of eating right, you are now, you know, eating at the dregs of humanity. And they take you to motels where no one will stumble upon you. So like in New York, they take you out to LaGuardia. And I thought that would create such an interesting place to have in that affair. So that was, you know, another reason I did it. Yeah, the other thing I had in mind was I. my stepfather had been in the war, and he said, you know, when you're in a war, he was in World War II, you know, people just had sex, you know, in the alleys. You know, people just, they didn't know. He was in London when a bomb would drop, and people just, you know, went crazy with sex. And I thought, be in a trial where you're hearing about murder and blood, and you're seeing pictures of, of of horrendous crimes, it's got to be like a war. And that alone must fuel, you know, erotica for people.
0: Yeah, I mean, it, it's so much about this book, too, um, and we can talk about the title, is about the human body. I mean, he, she lost the pleasure of, of food and eating. She's a vegetarian. She can't eat the kind of food that she wants when they take her to, like, Red Lobster and, and places like that. And, and then Graham is this doctor that dissects bodies so he understands every part of the body and they're dealing with a, a young boy infant whose body was burned and you focus a lot on the deterioration of of the husband's body. so it was a very um, it was a very physical book in that sense and I understand why it was as, as you're telling me about your your husband's, dying while this was going on. And, you know, a lot of times we, we don't think about our bodies until, I mean, yes, we do with sex, but we, a lot of times when we're going through our lives, we don't think about the body so much. And was this a new question for you to think about it in this way because of that? Or is it something that's always in your mind?
1: All those things, all the uh, reasonings were the the snippets from the book that you use that that speak about the body. All of that was in mind when I came up with the the title. But, you know, at the same time, again, because the autobiographical aspect of this book, my husband, I wanted to give his body to science. Um, My oldest brother is an anatomist. And so my family has always given their bodies to medical schools when we die. And so even when he was dying, I, I, I remember I, I wanted to in case I had to write a scene that involved a dissection, I, I got permission at the university here to go to the lab and do a dissection with the students on a cadaver. First of all, seeing a cadaver and, and, and doing a dissection was, you know, it was a profound experience. And you know they also have a memorial afterward for the people who donated the bodies. And that, I went to that, and that was a profound experience. But I was doing all of that ahead of my husband's death. And so I knew this was the path he was going to take. He was going to be in a lab. He was going to have a memorial. And that made the concept of the body super real to me while I was writing.
0: Will you donate your body to science?
1: I have. And I have to tell you, it is done with great respect. It's one of the most respectful ways in which people deal with the dead. And it's it's a very interesting process and it's the only way we're gonna have doctors. They cannot learn that by three D.
0: Yeah, I think, you know, when I when I imagine that, I think about and this word is coming to to me, maybe because things coalesce. Last night, I saw Lisa Tedeo speak, and she just wrote a book basically about female desire. And I was thinking about the concept of, of desire. And in your book, you write desire basically has to do with more about who you want to attract and not what you are attracted to. And I think maybe like as humans, we're, we are made up of desires all the time, even if it's like the desire for a shower, the desire to eat breakfast—that desire moves us. And that, when you see this body lying there, the desire is extinguished.
1: That's it. That's a wonderful way of putting it. The desire is extinguished. Then the body is an inanimate object. Maybe that's what. Maybe that's what the spirit is. Maybe it's just desire.
0: Which is also good for fiction. You know, you want to have your characters. Feeling desire, longing for something,
1: yeah I think I think people read fiction so they can feel desire because they don't all the time in their own lives
0: so that line that I mentioned where where Hannah says that desire has to do more with who you want to attract, not what you are attracted to. Can you unpack that a little bit
1: i, you know, I I've gone I, I if i if I think about my own um, life, okay it's the moment the arrow pierces me, okay, with the arrow, is usually when somebody, thinking somebody desires me. And, it, you know, i I think men, I think men and women are quite different this way. I don't think it's, you know, I don't want to make a giant generality. And I think in trans and queer people that this must be more fluid. And maybe it's my age and the time in which I grew up. But my turn-on was turning on men. <laughs> and, you know, if, if I thought a man thought I was sexy, that was, I would look at him again and think, hmm, is he desirable to me? And maybe it was a way of being protecting yourself as a woman. Because, I mean, it, in fact, okay, women really are in accepted cases of rape women are the deciders. You know, we're like the bird species, you know? The men come out and they have to impress us. I mean, you know, we get to decide whether we're going to have sex or not, essentially. Unless, again, except in cases of rape. And so that's an extraordinary power, okay? And I think power and sex go together in women that way as opposed to however they do with men and so you realize you have the power to attract a man okay and that turns you on i think that's a kind of normal way for at least some women and that's what i meant by
0: so i believe i read that you met your husband when you were 17 and he was 30 years older did you know all that then?
1: <laughs> First I was 16 and um no, I I I did not know that. I it, you know, at that point I was certainly not conscious of any of those things. But when I you know, looking back at that, uh, that's how I would probably describe how I got involved in it. I, you know, that was my part of it. Was you know, I I obviously was looking for an older man. I like, I was a fatherless girl that you know, that's obviously what I, I wanted and needed. And I you know, the idea that I attracted an older man was something that was sexually exciting for me. I mean it, it all mushed up with probably wanting a father's love. But I obviously, if you if you don't ever have your father's attention, and you're hungry for the attention of an older man, and suddenly an older man is interested in you sexually, that's a turnoff. And you know that's something that I know at that age, I really wanted. You know, and now you know, I'm right. Actually, I'm writing a book about you know trying to look at this incident that took place in my life from the vantage point I have now, which is the vantage point of the Me Too movement. And, you know, I, I look back at my early life with my husband when he's 47 and I'm 17. And I'm, you know, today, I, I I can't even imagine something like that taking place. But, you know, it did all the time in my youth. And so it wasn't that unusual, although probably the age difference, 16 and 47, was pretty unusual,
0: I mean, what fascinates me and I, you know, I don't know you and I don't know much about your life is that I would think that everyone around you in society in general, not only would really warn you against that, but that the assumption would be that you couldn't really develop and grow and become an independent woman, an independent thinker and really discover the world by connecting with the man and, and, and marrying him at that age when there's so much more to experience. And it seems like just from talking to you that, you know, that none of that happened.
1: That's true. None of that happened. You know, that's, that's what I'm writing about. I think, I think today everybody's assumption is if something like that takes place, it's going to be a disaster. And you know what? Mine wasn't. So... You know, I just want to show people and, you know, I, I did a piece um, about this on This American Life. So I a lot of people wrote me afterward. There are hundreds of women out there who feel exactly the same way and thank me for being able to say it. So, you know, I I hope the Me Too movement, I, I, I support it. And I think it's an extraordinary way that we can stop what has been truly an abuse over the years of young women. And at the same time, I hope it doesn't, you know, ruin some potential relationships to be.
0: So one of the things you reference a lot, you, you mentioned Patricia Highsmith. You also have references to Stanley Kunitz. So you have a lot of literary references sprinkled throughout the book. How did your literary life develop in you from the time you were a child?
1: Well, I, you know, honestly, I wasn't a reader. And my mom was really, really nervous about that because my mom was a really big reader. She wasn't educated, but she was a big reader and she didn't know how to get me to read as a kid. So she gave me pornography when I was 11. My first book I ever read, Cover to Cover, was The Mouth Lover. And it was a smart thing because then I I, I moved on to Valley of the Dolls and and Place. And I was, you know a bright kid. And I was, you know, I went from there to Madame Bovary, you know, it was, I was in the habit of reading something and pornography did it for me. Um, I wasn't a good student. I I was a high school dropout. I was, you know, I was going to be an artist. I wanted to be nothing but a visual artist. And I didn't see why school should get in my way. And, you know, I came to writing after I went to art school because, I you know I wanted to I was in conceptual art and I wanted I loved literature at this point and, and decided to make the jump. I had to teach myself how to write because I never learned in school. And um, I sat down for four years and I, I bought the Norton Critical Editions, which um, went from Gilgamesh forward. And I sat down and I read those books all the way through, you know, with the criticisms. And I gave myself an education and I practiced writing and then I started writing. So it was a, you know, it was a huge decision. It wasn't like I was some kid who woke up, you know, and had a natural talent for writing and started at five. So, you know, literature is so embedded in me. It's hard for me to write without these references. I
0: want to go back to, you know, kind of the very real images of the book. And I'm going to read two lines to you. And if one, if you don't want to talk about it, that's okay. But basically, you know, throughout the book, we we see Hannah's, she, she wants to be with Graham, but it's not like she doesn't have ambivalence. She loves her husband. He's dying at home. She has a lot going on in her mind. And they end up being on opposite sides of The decision making and the jury, they have different opinions of the verdict, which is really intense for her. You know, she when you fall in love with someone, I think we want to find someone who's like minded and he wasn't.
1: Well, that I I mean, that was an idea I had right from the get go that I didn't know which side they'd be on. And, you know, honestly, I didn't even know what the trial was, but I knew that they would be on opposite sides because it would be so astounding to be on a jury and then sit down with somebody that you thought the whole time agreed with you. I mean, I, I'm sure this is what it's like in, in for people who have different political persuasions and they're living together. You know, the idea that you and the person that you, are falling in love with or intimate with, has perceived the world completely different. And remember, this is their whole world for three weeks. So it it it's it would be like you, you know, you would finally admit to your lover that, you know, you hope, I don't know, Elizabeth Warren's gonna and he says, no, he hopes Trump and you think, oh my God, I have been intimate with a body that's gonna go and and, and, and vote for Trump. That would be such a would it end the relationship? And I, 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 you know, I didn't want to do it in politics because it's a very obvious thing. So I thought doing it in the trial would be a way of examining that kind of shock.
0: But she couldn't. At the same time, she couldn't resist. So she has this line where she says, um, "They they smoke a lot um, together. It's kind of a release, and neither of them." smoke in their everyday life but you know they're in this alternate universe and and when she really investigates when her husband dies and then she's left thinking about this affair she had she kind of becomes resolute and she says she will never let those hands touch her again and this is also because he did dedicate his body to science and it could be that graham is the one that dissects him and that's just too intimate for her but then there's also a line where she's smoking and he lights a cigarette and touches her hand. And his, she says his hand is the first living thing she has touched in months. She doesn't want to let go. So those two lines for me just sort of encapsulate, not just her mindset about all this, but what it's like to be human that it's like, it's very rare that we can just be so certain about one thing.
1: Actually, those two lines, I'm I'm stunned that any those two lines were absolutely written to be seen as a singular idea. So I'm thrilled somebody actually saw that as a singular idea. Because, you know, the book ends before you know whether they will go on to be lovers. And I wrote it after my husband was dead. So, you know, I I know it sounds so funny. So I was sitting there thinking you know, it was like maybe six months after he was dead. I'm I'm getting to the very end of the book where I, you know, I I had the the last time when when she says that about she would never let those hands touch her again, it's right after the death of her husband. And it's the idea that this man that she, that had once touched her as a lover is now, you know, holding up her husband's heart and explaining how it works. The thought of having that same hand touch you is is, you know, it, it's repulsive. It's, it, it would be horrifying. Okay. But now six months have passed and six months have passed for me. And I'm sitting there thinking, if I had someone out there that I might be able to find love with, of course I would go for it. So for me, the ending of the book, even though I don't Really answer it. It was so obvious to me, and I'm so surprised it isn't obvious to the reader.
0: Can you read a passage from an author that influenced you as a writer?
1: This is a passage from Chekhov, and it's um, from The Lady and the Lapdog, and it's the moment that this guy who always plays around, his name is Gurov, suddenly falls in love. And I thought it was such a beautiful passage about the universe, um, the mysteries of the universe being caught by a writer. At Orland, they sat on a seat not far from the church, looked down at the sea, and were silent. Yalta was hardly visible through the morning mist. White clouds stood motionless on the mountain tops. The leaves did not stir on the trees. Grasshoppers chirped. And the monotonous hollow sound of the sea rising up from below spoke of peace, of eternal sleep awaiting us. So it must have sounded when there was no Yalta, no Orleans here. So it sounds now, and it will sound as indifferently and monotonously when we are no more. And in this consistency, in this complete indifference to the life and death of each of us, There lies hid, perhaps, a pledge of our internal salvation, of the unceasing movement of life upon earth, of unceasing progress towards perfection. Sitting beside a young woman who in dawn seemed so lovely, soothed and spellbound in these magical surroundings, the sea, mountains, clouds, the open side, Gurov thought, How in reality, everything is beautiful in this world when one reflects everything except what we think or do ourselves when we forget our human dignity and the higher aims of our existence.
0: Tell me why you chose that.
1: Because you think you're just getting two people sitting on a bench looking at the ocean. And what Chekhov's able to do is he's able to take this scene that if it was filmed as a movie it would just be a scene and he's able to dig underneath it and talk about the mystery of existence and using these, using atmosphere to get to something that is unseen through language and I thought that was really beautiful and it's been a really important paragraph for me. <laughs>
0: Can you read something you wrote? Maybe it was tricky or hard or changed a lot from the first draft.
1: Well, I I was going to read a section from um, the body in question. And and it was, it's not that it was tricky or hard, although everything's tricky or hard. It was what I put in in the last draft to, you know, my last draft is usually the draft in which I try to, do what Chekhov did, try to take the surface of this story and put in deeper meanings or deeper mysteries into it. And so this is my attempt at it. And this is right after um, C2 has, they they get conjugal visits and her husband has come to visit and, and they did not make love, but they tried. And you know, she has already been sleeping with um, the other juror. She's already having a fear in her husband. And this is um, her standing at, at a balcony after her husband leaves. C2 has said many forgettable things about photography during the occasional lectures she gives at art schools and universities. But she will never regret saying this art is a conversation. In her 20s, when she photographed rock stars and socialites for Interview Magazine, she thought the conversation was supposed to be witty and sexy and hilarious and beautiful, above all else, beautiful. The kind of beauty that inspires adoration. When she met her husband became a photojournalist, the conversation turned to ethics, and beauty was no longer supposed to inspire love. It was an agent for goodness. When that conversation became only righteous noise, she started photographing animals, relishing calls, hoots, and bellowing. It took a few months, but she finally learned to distinguish what the bellowing meant. Animals have their own conversation. Lately, she has been taking pictures without her camera, blinking instead of clicking. Why does she need to provide proof of what she sees? Lately, she has began to suspect that the conversation, the wit and the dogma was all in her head, like a person who talks to God and God talks back to them. She leans against the railing, far from city lights. The night sky is both beautiful and sublime. During her lectures, she explains the difference between the beautiful and the sublime this way. The stars are beautiful, diamonds, twinkles, Something you can wish upon. The space in between the stars is the sublime, cold, black, and infinite. Something that inspires awe and fear. She envisions her elderly husband waving goodbye from the Prius this afternoon. Does that image inspire love? Something she can wish upon? Or awe and fear that the most difficult part of her life is just beginning?
0: Do you want to talk a little mo- bit more about that?
1: Well, I, you know, I wanted to use her photography. I mean, she's at the point where she is. I think every, every artist reaches that point where you begin to think, you know, why am I doing what I'm doing? Particularly in the moments where your life is, um, about to change. And, you know, what an artist deals with is the juxtaposition between the beautiful, the beautiful means the stars in the sky and the sublime, which essentially means death. And so I wanted to ground the novel, you know, while you're dealing with, you know, the trial and the horrible food at the, the lodgings and all the other jurors that you may or may not like was something that was ethereal and, you know, more mysterious than human behavior. And so that's what I was trying for in that scene.
0: Where do you write?
1: I write in my, I'm sitting there right now in my office, um, in my house, looking out of the lake.
0: And what do you do, or where do you go to get away from writing?
1: I go into nature. Nature is my great escape from writing.
0: Who do you show your work to first to get feedback?
1: I have three or four really close friends who are also writers, and we turn to each other. And you know, I, my friends will drop whatever they're doing, particularly if you're panicked, as will I for them. And we just sit down and read each other's work. And try to tell each other the truth.
0: How have you dealt with rejection?
1: You know, rejection's like the flu. you know it, it, you, you get rejected, it lasts about two weeks and then it faints. That's how I've dealt with it.
0: And what is your favorite word?
1: I would say but" because but is something that questions it, it's the it's the article that questions what you just said.
0: Thank you so much um, for this conversation. You've been listening to First Draft, a dialogue on writing. My guest was Jill Cement, author of The Body in Question. If you liked today's show, check out my interview with Helen Shulman, author of This Beautiful Life. We talked about sexting and the technological pressures on parents and children. You can find that interview and the entire First Draft archive of more than 250 interviews at firstdraftwriters.com. Remember, there are plenty of extras for becoming a member and donating to First Draft, including access to pitch-free, ad-free content, as well as cuts from the interviews that didn't make it into the final show, writing tips from my guests, books, and transcripts. The first tier of support is just $6 a month, so please go to patreon.com slash firstdraftwriters. Some clips from this interview that patrons will receive as extras include Jill Cement discussing her own experience watching a medical school class dissect a cadaver and the spiritual element, death, the limitations of a tight point of view, and her experience writing a novel with Amy Hempel. Coming up in the next few months on First Draft, interviews with Julia Phillips, Tashani Doshi, Jenny Ophill, Kevin Wilson, Chuck Palahniuk, Anne Enright, and Sahar Mustafa. You can stay tuned to First Draft on social media on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Just look for First Draft, A-D-O-W. You can email me at firstdraftwriters at gmail.com anytime. I want to send out a huge thank you to my patrons for making this interview happen. Your support makes First Draft a dialogue on writing a reality every week. The theme music for First Draft was produced and performed by Merv Mahaffey. I'm your host and producer, Mitzi Rapkin. Thank you for listening.